confident. Uh, the weather is beautiful. The trees are going to start budding this week. And by the way, do not get tricked tomorrow. Tomorrow is April 1st. And if you are a teacher, if you are in school administration, if you're a parent or a grandparent, just be on the alert, okay? Because there are tricks that abound on April 1st. Uh, this morning we're starting what we call our spring campaign. And what that means is that we get ultra-focused uh, on a topic for six weeks, and we see what God does to change our lives. Uh, a huge part of the spring, uh, the spring campaign is being in a small group. Uh, a lot of the information and applications that are going to be introduced in the campaign will be done through our groups. And if you aren't in a group, uh, today, right after this service, we have some group leaders who have room or availability uh, who will be in the lobby, and you can meet them and find out uh, when and where they meet. And I hope you'll connect with the group and try it out for the next six weeks. Uh, real Christian fellowship doesn't happen in rows. It happens in circles. And every believer is more healthy when he or she knows fellow Christians and is known by fellow Christians. And so I hope you that uh, you'll take advantage of that. We're looking forward to what God's going to do in our groups in this series. Well, we're starting a series called Necessary Things this morning, and we're going to be in the New Testament book of Acts, if you want to head that way. It's in Acts chapter 15, and so head on that direction. I looked uh, this week to see what secular historians consider to be the most important events in human history. And so here's what I found. This isn't my list. This is their list. Their top 10 most important events in human history. All right. Uh, number one, the American Revolution. Okay, that's their first one. Uh, number two, the Reformation. Number three, the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So at least it's in there. It's kind of weird, though, because I'm pretty sure the Reformation would not have happened if Jesus hadn't come. So... Just throwing that out there. Uh, number four, tearing down the Berlin Wall. How many remember that? Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, number five, World War II. Okay, how many were alive in World War II? All right. Uh, that means that you're alive, uh, you know, the American part of World War II started in 1941. So some of you were alive back then. Uh, World War I is number six. How many were alive during World War I? This guy right here. Okay. So uh, he actually may think that those should be switched, and he has a stick, so I'd be really careful, okay? So uh, uh, number seven, Gutenberg's printing press, which I think is definitely a huge thing in history. Number eight, they said the life of Mohammed. Uh, number nine, they said Pax Romana, which a lot of you probably thought was a disease. Um, uh, number 10 is the Renaissance. So I thought that was an, inter an interesting list. And obviously, as a believer in Jesus, my life, uh, my list would be different. And I'd leave some things off and add some things and put some things in different order. You probably would too. But all this made me think about what are the most important events in church history? What are the moments that have shaped the church that Jesus started? And I read a bunch of lists, which I don't have the time to go through in the service, but only of the, a few of the lists even talked about the event that we're going to see today. And this is an event which I believe is in the top 10 events in all of church history. 
It happened about 20 years after the resurrection. It's an event in church history that we cannot afford to overlook. It's often been called the Jerusalem Council because it was a meeting of early church leaders that took place in Jerusalem. Uh, I'll tell you uh, who kind of the guest list was at the meeting. Most of the apostles were there. So that's some heavy hitters, right? Uh, Paul and Barnabas were there, fresh off a missionary journey. Uh, The converted Pharisees were there. And this had all the makings of being a combustible meeting with uh, people getting upset, leaving the room, never speaking to each other again. But instead, God intervened. And there is an important record given to us in Acts by Luke the physician that details what the results of this meeting came to be. And so we're going to start in the chapter and read just a little in Acts chapter 15. Here we go. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren, said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phineas at Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. So we're going to talk about what happened at the Jerusalem Council today. And I know this is an exciting topic for everybody. I just see how you guys are just already just like glued in. It's like, uh, it's kind of like a history lesson. How many like history? Okay, so we're gonna, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to take the people who don't like history and we're going to try to make this event come alive for you today, all right? So this, this is really a challenge. It's a big challenge, but I believe that God will allow us to do it because this is one of the most important events in all of church history. We're going to talk about it with uh, several different things this morning, and these are in your bulletin if you want to follow along. So the first thing we ask is, what was the issue? Okay, what was the big deal? What was the issue? Well, we just read about this. Uh, Judaizers from Jerusalem had gone to the city of Antioch, and they were demanding that male Gentile believers in Jesus be circumcised and be responsible to keep the Jewish law as part of their salvation. So here's how it went down. Uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had caught wind of what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had really ticked some people off because they were inviting Gentiles into the Christian family. Gasp. I should have heard a gasp at that point. Uh, They were inviting Gentiles into the Christian family. Ah! But But they weren't. They weren't telling the Gentiles about the Jewish laws and customs. They were only telling them about Jesus and the way to salvation. Gasp again. Yeah, so so some of the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, this is really weird, they decided to head out on their own missionary journey. 
And they went to Antioch to correct the theology of Paul the Apostle. Right? It's kind of an interesting, weird missionary journey. Uh, the first, this, this is really weird, the first missionary effort sponsored by the Jerusalem church was designed to check the teaching of the first real Christian missionary. Did you understand? That's kind of weird. Uh, and so this is weird. A big dispute happened in Antioch. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews were preaching salvation by surgery. All right? Salvation by circumcision. And the Gentile guys were saying, somebody should have told us about this before we signed up. Uh, not to get too pointed and personal here, but can you imagine how this would play out in modern times? Uh, honey, you and the kids go on in the church. I'll just wait in the car. Right? So, so these Jewish Christians were arguing for the Moses model to be blended with the Jesus model. That was the issue. Well, while the church at Antioch, they did what churches have been doing ever since. They called the business meeting. And they appointed Paul and Barnabas to head down to Jerusalem so the issue could be resolved once and for all. So they made the long journey, and this council got together. Uh, Dr. Luke was good enough to give us the minutes of the business meeting. There was only one item on the agenda. Here's what it was. Are the Gentiles who have embraced Jesus also required to embrace the law of Moses? That was the question. The pro-Moses crew was adamant. Yes, real believers have to have Jesus and Moses. Well, the Jesus-only group, they started telling stories about Gentiles who had given their lives to Christ and entire communities that had been changed by the gospel of grace. And that's when Peter got up to talk. All right, so this is the second part of your message. And it's, the question is, what did Peter say? Right, you guys want me to go on? This, this is pretty cool stuff, right? right? How many of you are like, I like history today? Some of you, still, we still can't get you. So, all right, I'm going to take my jacket off. We're going to work a little harder at this. We are going to get you to like history today. In fact, you cannot leave until you like history. How many like history now? <laughs> all right, so, so anyway, uh, what did Peter say? Well, before we get into what Peter said, I have to give you a little background on this because uh, we talked about Peter last Sunday, but, but this is a little further than we went. Uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter was the speaker at the Feast of Pentecost. And on that day, 3,000 Jews from all over the region spoke 18 different languages. 3,000 souls were added to the church in one day. But clearly, Peter even on that day, was making the offer of God's grace only to the Jewish people. And it would take a big event for that to change. All right, so about five years after the resurrection, five years later, Peter was in Joppa. Okay, Peter was in Joppa. And this is a port down on the Mediterranean, uh, just south of Tel Aviv. This is where Jonah tried to go instead of preaching in Nineveh. Uh, Peter was staying, uh, he was on a sabbatical, because he was a pastor, right? <laughs> have to go on sabbatical. So he was staying with this guy named Simon the Tanner. 
which I always thought was a really cool name, right? Like, if you were going to be like an ancient Bible character with no last name, Simon the Tanner would be really cool. Doesn't that sound like a good name? She had like this tanning salon down on the Joppa coast and and Simon the Tanner. So anyway, so Peter goes up on the roof, uh, because that's what you do in the Mediterranean places. You go up on the roof. And he went up on the roof to pray about noontime. And when I say pray, I'm talking about the loose kind of praying, like the praying where you're sleeping type praying. Like when people say, I prayed all night. Like, were you in your bed? Yes. Okay, you didn't pray all night. You slept all night. But I was in an attitude of prayer the whole time. Uh, The last word I uttered before I fell asleep was amen, and the first word that I uttered when I woke up was dear God. (laughs) Dear, dear God. Um, So anyway, people pray with their feet pointed toward heaven, right? So um, Peter... He's up on the roof, he's praying, he falls into this deep sleep into a trance, and he starts seeing in his dream all these animals that were unclean for Jews to eat, right? So like uh, shrimp creole, barbecue shrimp, boiled shrimp, fried shrimp, uh, lobster tails in butter, uh, crab legs, And Peter's like throwing up in his mouth in his dream. Because Jews don't want anything to do with unclean meat and unclean foods. And then there's this voice in his dream that says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. And he could have added, and I'm not about to start now. Well, here's the thing. He had the same dream three times. And three was a pretty big number with old Peter. Do you remember he denied Jesus three times? Jesus redeemed him three times. We saw that last week. And now he had the same dream three times. I wonder if that meant anything. Well, he didn't have much time to consider it because uh, he was awakened by shouting in the front yard. People are yelling, hey, Peter, are you up there, Peter? Hey, Pollyanna, won't you come out and play with me? Apparently, that's first service stuff because Pollyanna was like a Disney movie in the 60s, Haley Mills. You guys don't know this? How many have never seen Pollyanna? All right, put this on your non-church homework list. (laughs) You've got to see Pollyanna, seriously. That's where we get the adjective Pollyanna-ish. Right, that's where it's from. Pollyanna. I can't believe this. This this is disappointing to me. So anyway, uh, he wakes up. People are yelling his name. There's two guys down there. There's a soldier who's with them for protection. They had come all the way from Caesarea, which is way up north, with this invitation from a Gentile centurion named Cornelius. And he had invited Peter to come and show him how to get to God. That's a pretty cool invitation. So Peter went with them reluctantly. How reluctantly? I want you to listen to his opening statement to the Cornelius family. Here's what he, the first thing he said to him. Listen, he said, you know 
how it is unlawful for a man that's a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. Translation, everybody knows that Jews don't associate with, much less visit the homes of Gentiles. But, then he put a but in there, but, this is in Acts 10, 28. He says, but, God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So Peter says, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to be with you unclean people. But God told me that I shouldn't call people unclean. And that's why I'm here. And I'm sure the Cornelius family said, how big of you. Uh, we're blessed that you would say that about us and that you would honor us with your presence even though we're unclean, even though we're dogs. Say, so who called them dogs? Uh, I know we probably don't want to get into that because you get really confused, but I'm pretty sure Jesus did. Why? Because there was an order. The gospel went to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Peter, who followed Jesus around for three years, this is the same Jesus who said things like, for God so loved the world, and that the world may believe. It had taken a while for Peter to reach the right conclusion, but it could have happened to any of us if we had grown up thinking other races were common or unclean, and now Peter got it. And it turns out that Jesus really did love all the little children of the world. And so Peter stood at Cornelius' family house, and he preached, and the whole crowd got saved. And then they got baptized, and then they got spirit-filled all in the same day. And the Jews traveling with Peter were astonished, like all caps astonished, that God would do this for Gentiles. Like, what in the world? God would do this for Gentiles? How is this? What is this? Now, this is good news for us because it's, it's probably true that most of the people in this room today are Gentiles. Right? How many of you have some Gentile blood in you? That means you're not a Jew, okay? Um, yeah, there should be more hands up. Uh, like, I don't have to do a DNA test to help you figure this out. You're Gentiles, okay? And if you're here and you have Jesus in your heart, this passage is really, really, really good news for you. So Peter, uh, he gets back to Jerusalem, and when he gets back to Jerusalem, the word had spread. Hey, uh, Peter, went, Peter went to Caesarea. He went into a Gentile house. He preached to the Gentiles. He was there when they ate food. Um, things aren't good. And, uh, and Peter, he gets back to Jerusalem, and he gets the what for from the brethren. Like the other apostles. Like, Peter, what are you doing, man? You went and ate with Gentiles, with uncircumcised people? I never figured out how it went. Anyway, how dare you? So, so Peter told them the story, and, it, and he ended with, what was I that I could withstand God? So basically what he was saying is, I didn't want to do it, but God made me. I, I didn't want to have to go with them, but God made me do it. And I had to give you that background because Luke tells us that the brethren then sort of accepted that God had granted repentance unto life 
And this is the wording from the New Testament, even to the Gentiles. Even to the Gentiles. Kind of weird. Now hopefully that puts into context what Peter's about to say, because we're going to look at it now in Acts 15, verse number 7. So Peter gets up at the council, and he's going to talk. All right? Here we go. Verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he probably should have added, even though I didn't want to go. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. How many would think that maybe Peter just made a pretty powerful statement? Peter reminded the leaders of the council that no one, no one, including the Jews especially the Jews, had ever been able to keep the law. Now, keeping the law was difficult for Jews who had grown up quoting it. And now, he says, you guys expect adults raised in pagan households under pagan worldviews and pagan customs to adopt it as their own? No way. Salvation comes completely through faith. And God has thrown open the doors of the Jesus movement to outsiders. Divine approval is available for everyone through Jesus. And Peter had been slow to realize it, but the gathering that Jesus started was not a continuation of Judaism. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. It was standalone new. The law had been entirely fulfilled in Jesus. And now salvation was completely by grace. And so Peter dropped the mic and sat down. And there was a little more talk in verse 12. And then James stood up. And so we're at number three now. What did James say? So James comes to the center of the room. And he hears all this whispering out there. Quite a few people are thinking the same thing. They're like, uh, hey. If I do it this way, you can't hear me. Brother of Jesus is going to talk. Hey, that's brother of Jesus. Brother. Hey, James, James, he's brother of Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus. <laughs> if you couldn't hear him. James was the brother of Jesus. Did you catch what I said? He's the brother of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. What would your brother have to do to convince you he was the son of God? How many have a brother? How many like... There's no way he could convince me. Right? Like, we have two boys, and I'm certain that Cody would laugh out loud if I told him that Dawson, like, he would, he would barrel laugh. Like, there's no way. Dawson would do the same thing. He's not the son of God. Your brother 
is clearly not the Son of God either. How many of you would verify this? Amen. Right? Or your sister. Right? Sorry, girls, but you're in this too. Uh, can you imagine, though, growing up as the brother of Jesus? Uh, how annoying would this be, right? It's like you go, poke! And he's like, blessings. <laughs> right? You try to get him with the one thing like this, and he just goes, you're, you're so funny. You're such a fun person. I love you. Right? You try to go tell him, hey, mom, mom, what? Jesus just broke the lamp. And she's like, no, no, he didn't, James. You know, you're telling a lie, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> right? And so he's grown up in this his whole life. And in fact, uh, he didn't want to believe in Jesus because nobody wants to believe that their brother's the son of God. How many of you, you grew up and there were favorites in, don't raise your hand, there were favorites in your house and it wasn't you. He raised his hand. I said, don't raise your hand. <laughs> it's like, there were favorites in our house, and it wasn't me. Everybody has this. So James has something to say, and he's got influence in this room. A bunch of the people sitting there were in the same boat as him. He hadn't given his heart to follow Jesus until after the resurrection. Here's his brother who had been walking around healing people for three years. And every time James heard about it, he's like, oh, whatever. You know, he's healing people. That's great. Good for him. I got stuff to do. I got to keep stuff nailed down here in Nazareth. We got to keep working. And, and then he hears this talk. Jesus said that he's going to die and come back from the dead. And James is like, okay, this is a little far-fetched even for him. And then he did it. And James is like, okay, sell the house, sell the farm, sell the carpentry stuff. I'm in. And now he is a leader in the Jerusalem church where he's been a leader for almost 20 years. And he's got this huge credibility. And he gets up now at this council. And he gives this scripture quote from this Old Testament herdsman named Amos and everybody's like, okay, well, that's not really what I expected, but that's nice. It's a good touch. And then he said this, verse 19, you should look. It's incredible. It's one of the most powerful statements in all of church history. Here's what he said, Acts 15, verse 19. Wherefore, my sentence is, like, here's my verdict, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. So James confirmed that Gentile believers weren't under the law, but under grace. And he advised all the leaders present not to make it difficult for people to give their hearts to Jesus. What do you mean, don't make it difficult? Don't add any of your own rules or preferences to salvation that Jesus only offers by grace. Don't make people jump through unscriptural hoops to come to Christ. Don't make it harder than it really is. Don't make it more complex than it really is. He said, listen, if people want to be Jews, there's a synagogue in every city. We're Jesus followers. It doesn't matter whether we're Jew or Gentile, we're Jesus followers. 
And, and so James then had this little bit of advice for the Gentiles, and you can read about this in Acts 15. We'll study this actually deeper in our small groups in session one. Uh, he gave these Gentiles some advice about their diets. Uh, not because he was like this fitness guru, uh, and it wasn't to put him under the Jewish rules. He wanted unity with the Jewish and Gentile believers. There was this thing with the Jews. Uh, they would die, literally, they would die before they would eat meat that had first been offered to an idol and then sold at the market. Now, uh, the Jews, they were the first people who were part of the farm-to-table movement, right? Like, they tagged where the beef came from on their cow. Like, it came from this farm, and we know it's good. It's never been in Gentile hands. Gentiles haven't even looked at it. It certainly has been offered at an idol and then sold in a market. Gentiles, pretty much, and we're Gentiles, so I could say this. Gentiles, they didn't really care where their meat came from. As long as it was edible and cheap. Right? Have you ever had a McRib? <laughs> so you guys know what I'm saying then, right? Basically, have you had any McDonald's sandwich? Who knows where that meat came from? Right? There may be a slight part of a chicken in the chicken sandwich, but I doubt it. There may be a tiny bit of beef in that cheeseburger that sat in my car for eight years and still looked the exact same after eight years. And I found out, like, whoa, we don't really care where it came from. We're Gentiles. But the Jews did care. They were much more selective. And here's the thing James is thinking. If the church, Jews and Gentiles, if the church is ever going to have a successful potluck, somebody has to blink. And so he asked the Gentiles, would you please be the gracious ones? Like when we have the church potluck, could you please just get your meat at like a kosher market? Right? Just don't go down and buy it at the idol market and then put it on the table. I bought this at the idol market to prove my freedom in Christ. Right? Which people still do and all these fringe things like, there's these believers who are against this thing, and so I'm going to post on Instagram that I do this to show I have freedom in Christ. Um, it's, it's still this nature thing that's going on uh, with us in the modern church. And so James gives this principle, and then he gives also a principle regarding living a moral life that's pleasing to God. But, but I want to end uh, this introductory message with this final question. Now, this is really what's most important. Uh, so we, we talked about, okay, here's... Uh, what it was all about, the issue. Here's what Peter said. Here's what James said. And now, what does it mean for us? Uh, why? Why is what happened at a business meeting 2,000 years ago something we should know about? How does it affect us? And so let me finish up by sharing a couple of highlights from the last part of this message. So the council ended. It's officially over. And they decide, okay, we're going to write letters to document what we said. Paul and Barnabas are going to deliver them back to Antioch, and we're going to send a couple of our own guys with them, Barsabbas and Silas. And verse 24, we'll catch up with it here. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you. So they admitted that the missionaries came from Jerusalem. 
They admitted, we had people go out from our church to go and fix your church. And they troubled, we troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. Okay, so, so Paul, Barnabas are going to take them the word. Now, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. This is the verse where we get the title for our series. Yeah, these necessary things. And then verse 31. Which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. The Gentiles were excited that they could just follow Jesus out of love, especially the men, without being held to the demands of the law. And it comes down to this. When any person in any era of time tries to mix and match law and grace, he ends up with religion instead of salvation. Because anything added to the gospel is no longer the gospel. There are some well-meaning people, some well-meaning churches, some well-meaning denominations that have added restrictions and commands and instructions to the gospel of Jesus. And it must be time to start closing out the service. And it never works out. You know, think about this. When you add something to salvation, we call that legalism. Legalism doesn't lead to purposeful living. It leads to misery and drudgery and confusion. The victorious Christian life can never be found in the culture of legalism. And maybe you grew up under a legalistic environment where you, they had this list of rules you had to do, and you're like, okay, do all these and the grace of God. Right? It's kind of like in this... Uh, there's this cult that has this uh, book, and it has this uh, book in the book, and it has this chapter in the book of the book that says this. For by grace are you saved after that you have done all that you could. Which when you read it, you're like, wow, that sounds really good. Here's the thing. It's impossible. You can't have grace and works in the same package ever. It's either got to be all by works, 100%, got to earn our way, or it's got to be all by grace, 100% can't earn our way. And I was reading this passage last fall, and those words, necessary things, just jumped off the page at me. And I started to ponder scripturally, what are the necessary things for us to have unity with other believers? Uh, what are the essential components of the gospel? What are uh, parts that, that are a must-have to Christianity? Right? We've got to know this because uh, when I was growing up, <laughs> it's kind of funny, uh, which I grew up, I was a teenager mostly in the 80s. And, uh, and then, uh, well, all in the 80s, I started college in 1990. And, um, and we'd go to people's house like, okay, we've got to see if we can fellowship with these people. Uh, Junior, you go look at the CD rack and uh, see if they've got any non-approved Christian artists, right? So, like, if they're Bob Jones, uh, the Bob Jones group, A-OK, -okay, they're good. 
they've got Patch Hamilton, he's good. Uh, if they've got Steve Green, that's edgy. Now, most of you don't even know who Steve Green is. Like, you'll Google him today, and he'll be like, whoa, this old school singer. But back then, he was edgy. If they've got Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith, we're out of here. Right? Because they, they were called Christian rock. And there's no such thing. Because have you ever heard of Christian murder? You see what I'm saying? Have you ever heard of Christian adultery? I didn't go down this list. So, uh, so you got all these approved things. And then, uh, then you got to go look at their books. Do they have any non-approved books on their bookshelf? This was before there was even such a thing as DVDs. I mean, goodness gracious, we'd have been in trouble then. Uh, do their sermon tapes, because back then it was tapes. Do you guys know what those are? Tapes. And they had tapes. And you had to look, okay, they've got Jack Hiles. Good. They've got Paul Chapel. Good. They've got Bill Hybels. We're gone. All right, so most of you have no idea who I'm talking about, which is so refreshing. What that means is that you are growing up in a Christian environment that is not about anybody but Jesus. I love that. We don't have to fit in anybody's camp. We don't have to have a guru. We don't have to have approved this or approved that. We got Jesus, and we got the Holy Spirit, and we got these necessary things. The Bible teaches five of them. You have to have all five of these to have Christianity. If any one of them is missing, you end up with a cult. You end up with the perversion of the true gospel. And so we're going to look at one each week starting next week. The deity of Christ, which is next week. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the inspiration of the scriptures. Uh, in week three on April 14th, we're going to look at the death of Christ and remember what he's done for us. And that evening at 5.30, we have a special communion service. We're going to invite the whole church, both services, all the groups, all the individuals to come together for that. You know, as we get into these, though, I hope what you'll get out of it is this. Having the foundation of good doctrine is essential to practical Christian living. It's essential. Here's the thing. You always live out what you truly believe. You do. Christian doctrine is not some abstract thing that's in a book somewhere. It's a living faith. And if your beliefs are grounded in God's word, it's a guarantee that your life won't be either. There was a research poll done by the Barna Research Group, and they do all these church interviews for like the last 30 years. And this was like six, seven years ago. I was reading this book, and uh, this stat like jumped, like, whoa, that can't be true. Here's what they said. Self-proclaimed Christians in churches that teach salvation by grace through faith. So not like fringe, like out-of-the-norm Christians, like people who actually believe Christianity is by grace through faith. Self-proclaimed Christians were asked this question. Okay, they said, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, we believe in all these different things about who he is and the Bible. And Yeah, they said, okay, do you use the Bible, what you say is the inspired word of God, do you use the Bible for your daily living? Like decisions you make with your family, at work, finances, do you use the Bible for that? Here's what they said in the poem. 
the percentage that said, yeah, yeah, we use the Bible for our daily decisions. Nine percent. Less than one out of ten. Why? Because they didn't really believe what they said they believed. They didn't. We live what we truly believe. This is why the necessary things are so crucial to us. We've got to fall back in love with the simplicity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a church building. He's not some weird Christian you met somewhere. He's not the judgmental Christian you met somewhere. He is the ultimate foundation of everything we do. And the necessary things are founded in him. Now, it's possible there are people who walked in today with some confusion about salvation itself. Maybe you grew up uh, being told that believing in Jesus was important, but you also have to go to church, be baptized, keep these rules, don't break these rules, etc., etc., etc. The Jerusalem Council is a powerful event in church history because it cleared up the confusion for all of us. We don't have to wonder if we've done enough. We know we can never do enough. Salvation isn't about what I do. It's about what he's already done. How can we know 100% for sure that we have eternal life? Because God tells us we can. Through the gospel. Through repentance and faith. Turning from my personal path and my personal opinions toward Jesus and his gift of eternal life, believing that he died for my sins and rose again. He's the only way to God. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. Let's pray together.